Welcome to 52 Pearls, the weekly money wisdom podcast. I'm Melissa Joy, a certified financial planner and founder of Pearl Planning. And I'm joined by Melissa Friedenberg, Pearl Planning Financial Advisor. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. (laughs) You're never going to forget our names because, of course, we're both named Melissa, children of the 70s. So each week we provide a bite-sized actionable tip that we hope will help you make better financial decisions. The purpose of our podcast is to accompany our weekly financial tips, which we call 52 Pearls. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to sharing along the way. So it's Melissa Joy here, and today on our 52 Pearls Money Wisdom podcast, I am joined by certified financial planner Ashby Daniels. Ashby, welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Melissa. So Ashby, you, you are a financial planner at Shorebridge Wealth Management in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I love that you have a very specific focus with your practice. You work with clients who are retirees and pre-retirees, and you want to be an expert on everything that's retirement. In fact, you are about to publish your first book called Medicare Simplified right in that vein. That's correct. Excited about that. So today I asked you to be on the podcast because you have a terrific blog called The Retirement Field Guide, and you had a post from April 6th, which we'll make sure to include in our show notes, called The Four Stages of a Bear Market. And of course, today we are living through the first bear market in more than a decade, and I thought you laid out things beautifully about the decisions that people make, especially retirees, as they navigate a new and always challenging investment environment. So thanks for putting that out there. Um, How did you come to write on that topic? So I was actually, I have to credit, uh, there's a consultant called Alan Weiss. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but I was on, he did a Facebook live stream and he created something similar to kind of the flow chart that I created. And I was like, that flow chart makes a ton of sense. I could adapt that to what we're experiencing as we speak. And so it was really just, I took a lot of the ideas that were in his, it's, it looks very similar. I can't, I couldn't even remember what the words are that were in his. I think I added the decision points, but it was, uh, I saw it as like, you know how it's like when you when you have a creative spark, you just start doing. And so, I mean, I probably saw that flowchart. I created one myself, and then wrote a blog post all total in about two hours from A to Z, just because you know when you're inspired, that's what happens. I guess. I love when ideas lay themselves out for you, and I think this one was very appropriate. It was visual. It's it's a way to educate, and I would encourage anybody that's listening to take a peek at your blog post, because we're going to talk about some of the visuals, basically a decision tree that we all go through, but especially retirees, when we try to decide what to do when things feel like they're challenging, um, in this case, the when your investments are down, when you have losses. So I want to take us through this these stages of a bear market. You can help me kind of guide me through what you saw. But first, we're rolling along. It's a bull market. Things are good. You, you feel good. Um, in fact, you may be looking for more in terms of your returns. So that was really where we were at up until, you know, six weeks ago. Yeah, I think this, you know, when we talk with people, especially, 
you know, out in the general public and people find out that we're a financial advisor, people are always wondering, well, when is, when is this all going to go to, when is this all going to end? You know, you, you have a bull market that's north of a decade. And so the natural questions are, well, what should we be doing? You know, that's always the question, isn't it? Is what should we be doing? It's like, when's, when's all this going to end? It sure seems like it's going to end. And it's like, well, it, it does. I don't think that anybody was going to think that A, this was going to go on forever. And B, I don't think that anybody saw a virus being the catalyst. So, so true. I, it's, it's so difficult to predict the future. I think if you, if you are trying to make predictions of the future and you're in our shoes, it's likely a marketing ploy and not, a, you, not something that you're actually confident in. So I always preach that you know, we have to live with uncertainty, uncertainty, but we all knew something was going to change eventually. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of the quote by Nick Murray is that, you know, there are no facts about the future. So it's, you know, the idea that there's any certainty is, you know, a total, a total myth. You know, everything that we, you know, you hit the crisis. We don't know. It, they always say that it's going to be something surprising. It's going to be something surprising. And that was what everybody was saying leading up to the end of what, what ended up being the end of the bull market. Well, it was something surprising. It was something that was on, not on anybody's radar. Totally. Even, once it, even once it came to light, it wasn't on anybody's radar. It was like, oh, it's just the flu. It's like, and then it wasn't. It looks so obvious with the benefit of hindsight. And this is the third bear market that I've lived through as a professional. And everything looks like you totally should, whether you, we can't say we saw this coming, but you know, with the benefit of hindsight, it's like, why don't we change everything in January? And that's just not the way the world works. No, unfortunately it's not. And, you know, so that leads to the first decision point, right? Which is once the crisis occurs and it knocks us off, knocks us onto our heels, what do we do? You know, there's, right. you know, that's, that, that really then does become the big question. I mean, what should we do? I mean, how many times do we hear that? You really feel like action is the ultimate response. And I think I've been spending time talking with financial therapists, psychologists, behavioralists about how there's a fight or flight or flee, um, fight or flight kind of response that is, you know, harkens back to our primitive times as a human, um, where it's like, what action can I take to protect myself when you get to that crisis moment? So how do you, how have you prepared your clients for the crisis and the decision point afterwards? And, and what are you recommending that people do? Sure. Well, the, the, the decision point is pretty, pretty simple. It's, do you accept that, you know, crises like this bear markets are just part of a successful investing plan. There's no way to avoid them. We either accept that fact or we panic and panic means we sell out. We do, you know, we do things to make us feel better, even if that's not the right decision. That's the irony of, of you know, making a bad decision is that oftentimes making a bad decision is, is actually a bad thing for us. Um, but, you know, you, you get to that point, and I think that, you know, what, I, what I've done through the process is, and this was much prior to the crisis, but for years I have talked to clients about, measuring risk in terms of years. I don't think that clients understand percentages. It's not that they don't understand percentages. They don't understand what that percentage means to them. So, and that's not a, I'm not downgrading clients. I, I mean, I have 
super, super smart and intelligent clients. I don't think that advisors understand percentages. So it's not, it's not a knock on anybody. But what does 70-30 mean to you? You know, what is a 70-30 portfolio? Okay, well, well, I'm only down hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, to me, that's like, that sounds terrible, horrifying. But if I, if I think of risk in terms of years and I say to a retired client, you know, and this was a lot of my phone calls, you know, as, as it unfolded was, hey, you have eight years worth of fixed income set on the side that is there for exactly these purposes. We didn't know these were going to come. We don't know when they're going to come. We don't know how long this is going to last, but we know that we have you know, a certain number of years to where until this becomes an issue for you, until we have to sell equities. I think that the question is not, you know, when, when I'm thinking about risk is how long do I, how long can I go without selling equities? That's the way I view risk. I look at things as in two ways. First, what you just, exactly what you just described, years and often months in terms of cash. Like we have this many months cash that's available and then we go into the bonds and then the second thing is when you are a retiree, something flips in your mind and you say, okay, I've, I've gone from this river of money that I kind of can take from with my income to now we have a stagnant, you know, um, it's a pond or a mm -hmm. lake where, you know, there's only so much water in there, only so much cash. Um, and so then they, they, things become much more finite. But when we are working with retirees in their 60s or even early 70s, we are planning for 20 to 30 years of retirement. Um, so there's, there's two things. There's both the acknowledgement that we have uh, the foreseeable future mapped out if we need to. And the second thing is that we're not just, this is not like we need to get things perfect for the next year. We need you to stay in the game for decades still. Um, and people were really, because there was a more of a mentality of clipping coupons in retirement when our current retirees were growing up, you, it, it, that shift of perspective where like, look, you're not done. You're still an investor that needs money over time um, really comes to the forefront, I think. Well, I think you say it so nicely that, you know, maintaining the perspective of this being a multi-decade approach. You know, I think a lot of people forget that the portfolio is a tool. It is not the plan. So a lot of, yep. you know, through this process, you know, while I'm also talking about how long they have to go before this is an issue for them, revisiting the plan and showing them, hey, even given where mar the market is today, it, you know, by all, by all measures, it looks like you're going to be just fine. So it's like having just that vote of confidence from their advisor can be frankly, life-changing. It can help people sleep better at night, you know, just knowing that, hey, we've run the numbers. You still are okay. Um, or at least it looks like you're going to be okay. I think that, you know, the yeah. portfolio garners a lot of attention because it's the sexy part of what we do. Um, but in reality, what's the valuable part of what we do? The plan itself. You know, what, it, what is the plan for when things like this happen? That's the key. And I love the concept, you know, we have been planning for situations just like this within your financial plan. That's why we use things that have less meaning, like a Monte Carlo scenario where, you know, the assumption is we are, we also want to consider whether tomorrow is your worst day. Um, but you need to plan for everything and the financial plan can really be a touchstone that you, you can look at your portfolio and say, I've lost this much. 
but look on the other side of the ledger. How much less are you spending? How have things been modified because you have credits for your travel for the next 24 months and other things? And typically, you know, when you get into those percentages, you, when you come up to a situation like this, if you're willing to be flexible with all portions of your plan, then you have a lot higher probability of, you know, getting through this um, with your plan still intact. Absolutely. I mean, I think what's interesting about this particular crisis is everybody's spending has jumped off a cliff as well, you know, right. because what are you going to spend your money on? I mean, outside of Amazon deliveries, there's not a lot to spend money on. You know, nobody's going on big vacations. Nobody's doing anything crazy. So, you know, it's a really interesting time. A lot of bear markets, people are still wanting to travel and do things, but not, not now. I agree with you. But, and I would also say though, like in both of the previous downturns, so much of our, um, uh, so much of, you know, kind of white collar retirees are tied to investments and mm -hmm. so are their peers, right? So in 08 and 09, yes, people still wanted to travel, but they might not have taken the, you know, three week luxury vacation. They, everybody modified their decisions and spending habits. It's just a lot more rapid this time and you can see it. Everybody, you yeah, know, absolutely. when you bring that up, it's like, oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But I, I know that um, if people wrote down their expenses, you know, they'd be super high on groceries and everything else would be falling off the cliff, just like you said. Yeah, absolutely. So can you describe, so there's two choices. You can accept that basically you have a plan in, and presumably with an acceptance, you're saying, let's stick with the game plan. We may be rebalancing, but we're not scrapping. Um, we're not going to step aside and try to avoid, you know, future losses and then not be invested for the recovery. What's the alternative? What's the permanent damage decision? So if you panic, I think that you are, you know, generally speaking in most bear markets, you're offered another opportunity to at least undo some of the damage, if not all. I mean, depending on how, you know, how well you are coached, depending on how you address the crisis. So, you know, nothing's, uh, nothing is set in stone. But I think that, you know, if you've decided to panic, at some point you have to move back to acceptance. You know, you have to move. You have to move back to the idea that at some point I have to embrace that volatility is not the same thing as risk. Risk is the is the loss of permanent capital. Volatility is temporary fluctuations. It's a significant difference that I think it's lost a lot um, in our industry. Our industry, I think, does a terrible job of it. The media and the media makes it worse. But the idea is that if you've panicked, you still have to move to acceptance. If you don't move to acceptance at some point, you are going to cause permanent damage. And permanent damage is simply, you know, I kind of define it as you become unable to retire in the way that you envisioned, or you may still be able to retire in the way that you've envisioned, but you've put a significant dent in the legacy you could have left to your heirs. So however that is defined is somebody, somebody's paying the price somewhere as a result of the panic decision. You know, we don't know, you know, just like we didn't know this was coming. We don't know when the recovery is going to occur. But what we do know, at least historically speaking, is that every panic, every crisis has been met with a recovery to this point. So we have to understand that that's part of the process as well. And I think that gets lost very often is the fact that, well, how, you know, this is going to go on for so long, but we don't know how long. It could be a month. It could be three years. We don't know. I mean, what are the economic ramifications of it? The economy, even, you know, even thinking about that, the economy and the stock market do not coincide. 
So that, yeah. And you got to move back to acceptance. Agreed. Like what we're seeing now today. So, you know, people talk about how you can't predict the future when it comes to markets, when they're, they're about to go down. Now they're, we're, headlines are filled with predictions of here's what the economy is going to look like. We're going to be open in July. We're going to be open in 2021. Um, again, you, you have to be able to embrace an uncertainty and uh, that, that goes for recoveries as well as when the next downturn is going to re- going to be occurring. Well, and the great irony is that, you know, people were willing to buy stocks at 28,000, you know, and then, but what, what we tend to forget is that value and price are are uncorrelated. They are, you know, they are in, they have an inverse relationship. You know, price goes down, value goes up. Your future returns are higher as a result, you know, by default, it has to. And, you know, so thinking that, well, the market goes down, so I'm going to sell out is antithetical to the entire idea of investing for the long term. Which is so easy to understand when you are in the heart of 2019, things are up, you're talking to a new client, explaining this is our process. Hey, when things are going to go down, I'm not, you're not hiring someone who's trying to avoid that. You're not hiring a tactical advisor. But honestly, like it's a completely different experience when you're in the middle of March 2020 and you're, you know, you've just experienced a 30% decline as well as a pandemic personal health crisis where you're concerned about the health of everyone you love. Um, so that experience is what, to me, why there's value to having one of the, the most important parts of the relationship, your relationship with a financial planner is that moment when they can talk you through this, this period of time versus, you know, kind of being untethered. Well, I think that's a great point. And I think it's also, I, I forgot to mention that the crisis breeds fear. And fear is a natural emotion. I think that every client and advisor feels fear, you know, especially as, as we cross the precipice into, you know, when the NBA started canceling the season, when every major sports organization canceled their season. And it's like, you know, I'm sitting here sleep, you know, at 1030 at night or 11 o'clock at night, laying in my bed thinking like, holy crap, you know, tomorrow is going to be an interesting day. Yeah. And, you know, we all fear that we all feel and fear the same things. The difference is objectivity. You know, I'm looking at a client situation with an unbiased eye. It's not, not that it's not my money. I don't, I, I think you would say that any, any good real financial advisor cares as much about their clients as almost as much as anybody who shares their last name, as close as you can get to that. So true. Um, and so to think that we're we're sitting there, you know, just you know, looking down from the ivory tower, thinking that this is easy, is not true. You know, it is. It is. It's scary. It is. But the difference is objectivity. Yeah, and I, I mean, I wouldn't even say that I'm objective. I, I think that I, there's a part of me that is very compartmentalized. That's feels every every emotion that the investor is feeling. Um, I just have process. That that's a great point. I rely yeah, that's a better way of looking at it. Because, Absolutely. you know, I know that my conversations with my financial advisor friends during um, difficult moments now or in the past are very real and very emotional. Um, and you, unless you, you know, are devoid of emotion, which there are a few people in this world that are, but not many of us, then I think acknowledging that emotion and, and separating it from your decision process 
and you know you have a essentially an investment manager has a game plan for moments like this the the part that i just am unwilling to um uh, to consider or ponder is uh, bailing on an investment process as the investment manager like i know some financial advisors who are um you know here's our process but then every time there's a massive situation let you use you know eight and oh nine they're like well and in that case i did you know i never you know i never go to cash except for that time or every time things are really really bad and it just to me is um it, it's it's our process is to stay with the process that's the, the number one thing amen that's a, you know i could not have said that better myself i i think i think about that all the time is like the idea, the reason for having a process, the reason for having an investment policy statement, the reason for having a agreed, a previously agreed upon asset allocation plan, whatever you want to call this, is so that you are prepared for when these types of events happen. There is a guideline to follow so that you are rules based. So I love that you bring that up because I, I hear the same conversations. And the preparation is only as good as your willingness to use it, right? So, um, so as we summarize, I think this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, if you are a pre-retiree or a retiree who has, you know, they capitulated, they, they got to the point, their decision point, and they are at risk of permanent damage, what would you tell them to be thinking about right now? Well, I, I go back to a different Nick Murray quote. Uh, Nick Murray is kind of, I'm a fanboy, if you will, you call it what you will. He's an advisor's advisor for that. people who, yep. for people who uh, don't know who that is. Um, I don't think that, I think a, a great way to kind of uh, think through the idea of re getting, you know, kind of jumping back into the waters is not worrying about where the next 20% move is, worry about where the next 100% move is. You know, I, I think that second part is rhetorical. Maybe it's not, but we don't know which direction the 20% move is going to be no matter where the market sat at the moment, whether we're at, you know, 23,000 or we're at 18,000 again, or we're at 27,000, we cannot and do not know what the next 20% move is. But when you're looking at, you know, you said it earlier, keeping that multi-decade perspective that, you know, keeping that in perspective and keeping the idea that where's the next hundred percent move going to be, you know, jump back into with a, a pre, previously agreed upon asset allocation plan. Maybe you come up with a plan to re-enter the market in a more comfortable way, you know, and then, and then implement the plan, just like always come back to the plan. Yeah. I think, you know, re-entry, you can use a plan to kind of get back in. And then I would encourage you to evaluate where the process left you hanging. So I, over the last decade, met many new clients who had a lot of regrets about how they handled 2008 and 2009 and then how they handled the years after because they were psychologically damaged maybe they were taking on too much risk maybe they were investing without a financial plan which i think is the, the case in 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 many cases because you can't have a financial plan as your touchstone if you never got around to the planning <laughs> um so i would encourage people to be proactive about finding a process and in many cases people do need a professional to guide them to to be a partner on their financial journey so if someone like ashby or myself 
um, or a good certified financial planner can be of assistance, I think I'd find that person sooner, not later. Don't wait for the perfect moment. Or my new mantra is don't wait for a good hair day to do your financial plan. <laughs> like financial plan is built for you in your most vulnerable moments. Absolutely. Well, Ashby, I'm going to look forward to reading your book when it comes out. I bet you'll be a guest on our podcast again sometime soon. And I just appreciate the time in a, a time where, you know, we're, we're working really hard to communicate that you were willing to share your wisdom with um, our, our podcast listeners. Thanks, Ashby. Many thanks. Many thanks for having me on, Melissa. I appreciate it. You can access our first eight episodes now, and we'll be releasing new episodes each Monday. For more information, visit pearlplan.com or our Facebook page, Pearl Planning Wealth.